All right, my voice may sound a little strange today. I'm more of a bass than a baritone, and that's because I've got some stuff in my lungs, but I'm okay. Uh, we continue our series in the Corinthian letters of Paul. He calls them holy ones, saints, uh, called to be in a holy community. And in the first section, he confronts them about dividing their unity by their attachment to specific ministers rather than the message of the cross and the wisdom of God. In the second section, he tells them they're violating the holiness of the community by allowing great sin in their midst and using the courts of the world to settle their disputes. They are to maintain the holiness and the unity of the community and to seek to glorify God with their bodies so that gross sin is not found in the congregation. We're about to enter into the third section, chapter, chapters 7 through 9. There's a little transition here, uh, which can be seen as an extension of what he's been saying, but it's also easily understood as a responsa section. Now, I've entitled this apostolic responsa uh, in parentheses, that's Q&A. You know Q&A. <laughs> so... Um, Going back to the time of Moses, people would come and inquire, and the uh, the judges of Israel, Moses, the prophets, uh, and the rabbis and pastors would give a response uh, based on what uh, had already been established in the community, and then applying it to new circumstances in that context. So Paul is going to be doing that. In this section. So we begin in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, and he says, uh, let me read the first verse there. Now, concerning the things about which you wrote, it is good for a man not to touch a woman. Now, this goes on for several verses. I'm going to read those in a second. But I want to start with that first part. Paul begins by saying, Now, concerning the things of which you wrote, Now that indicates in some sense that he's moving on from what he had just confronted them about in the first sections. Uh, And he was moving to what the Corinthians had actually asked him independently. Remember, I've heard from Chloe's people that this is going on among you. Now concerning what you ask me about. So the problem is that we don't actually have the basis of their questions But I believe there are hints in the text that help us to attempt to reconstruct it. When he says the things about which you wrote, Paul had written them a previous letter. You recall when he said, I wrote you previously uh, to avoid fornicators. I didn't mean the ones in the world. So he had already written them. And so it is possible that it is uh, these items that he's talking about that he's listed in chapters 5 and 6. And in those letters, he's listed fornicators and idolaters. We're going to see in this chapter, he addresses fornication. In the second chapter, idolatry. And so it's possible that these subjects are the basis of their questions. And that would make sense because they had also received a letter from the apostles themselves which we have in Acts 15. So I want you to turn with me to Acts 15. It's really easy to misunderstand the question and therefore misinterpret 
the answer. And I want to make sure that we are responding to what Paul is responding, not making it up just based on his answer. It would be very easy to take an answer to a different question and come up with a conclusion that has nothing to do with what he was talking about. In Acts chapter 15, (coughs) when we get to verse 23, you recall this is the big battle over whether or not Gentiles should be circumcised and obey all the commandments. And in the context, the apostles write this letter. They sent this letter to them, to the Gentiles. The apostles and the brethren who are elders, to the brethren in Antioch, Syria, Cecilia, uh, Cilicia, sorry, who are uh, from the Gentiles, greetings. Since we have heard that some of our number, to whom we gave no instruction, have disturbed you with their words, unsettling your souls, it seemed good to us, having become of one mind, to select men to send to you with our beloved Barnabas and Paul, men who had risked their lives for the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore we have sent Judas and Silas, who themselves will report the same things by word of mouth. It seems good to the Holy Spirit and to us to lay no greater burden than these essentials, that you abstain from things sacrificed to idols, from blood, from things strangled, and from fornication. If you keep yourselves from these things, you will do well. Farewell. So this letter that is sent to the Gentile churches specifically is addressing fornication and idolatry, the two issues that Paul is talking about now. It seems to me that uh, that letter circulated, it would be highly likely that Paul, as founder of these churches, would send a letter with a more full explanation that prompted these questions regarding fornication in relationship to marriage and idolatry uh, in regard to food sacrifice idols. So fornication and marriage, food sacrifice to idols. The next two chapters. There's also a possibility that the Corinthians are asking these questions because of the direct teachings of Jesus that are circulating orally and or in the Gospel of Matthew. Two statements in this chapter have allusions to statements of Jesus in the Gospel. And Paul seems to be leaking linking those in the discussion. These are in Matthew chapter 5, we'll get to in a minute, and Matthew chapter 24, the Sermon on the Mount and the Olivet Discourse, two major teachings of Jesus. Always bothers me that people interpret the, the epistles as if Jesus never came. They talk about Jesus dying, but he never taught a thing. And the truth is that the foundational teachings of our faith are the teachings of Jesus. So I think that that's uh, likely, that Paul wrote about this subject to them, and they were looking at this subject from the teachings of Jesus uh, themselves. So now, we'll go back to 1 Corinthians 7 and start with the first five verses. Concerning the things you wrote, it is good for a man not to touch a woman, but because of fornication, each man is to have his own wife. And each woman is to have her own husband. The husband must fulfill his duty to the wife, and likewise the wife to her husband. The wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband. And likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife. 
Stop depriving one another, except by agreement for a time, so that you may devote yourselves to prayer, then come together again, so Satan will not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. Now, in this passage, Paul uh, begins with the question of touching a woman. Now, the phrase actually attached uh, is, is to attach to a woman, or to kindle her as a fire. That's what the Greek says. The translators kind of tone this down. So this is clearly sexuality. And it appears to be a question of whether or not marriage is a good idea. Because it sounds like they're saying it's not good to touch a woman. In the same way that the the, the uh the disciples came to Jesus and said, if that's the way it is, it's better for a man not to marry. In other words, it's that kind of a question. This is not an easy question because the Corinthians had been raised in a pagan world and marriage and sexuality is very different for them than it is for Israel. For the pagans, sexuality is primarily outside of marriage and marital sex is primarily about procreation. For Judaism, sex is exclusively a holy union between a man and a woman. And like the holy community, is about glorifying the Lord. So their orientation to sexuality is very different. And this became a problem for many of the church fathers trying to figure out what to do. And that's one of the reasons why in the Roman church, there's still this idea that the primary purpose of sexuality is procreation, and therefore anything that can uh, violate procreation is not allowed sexually. It's coming out of that struggle that's coming from paganism into biblical content. Judaism would, would view this somewhat different. So the question appears to be for them to say, uh, should we even marry? Now, there's another issue which Paul addresses which I think is the basis of his discussion. That's also, I think, related to Jesus' teaching. I'm going to leave that alone because I'll pick that up as we get to his stating of it. But for this purpose, I want us to go to Matthew chapter 5 and look at the teachings of Jesus that might have prompted uh, this discussion. In Matthew's Gospel, chapter 5, Jesus is referring to uh, the law and he's going to address some of these issues that the Corinthians would have had some concerns about. And in 527, he says, You have heard it said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lust after her has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right hand makes you stumble, tear it out and throw it away from you. It is better for you to lose one of the parts of your body than your whole body to be thrown into Hades. If your right hand makes you stumble, cut it off and throw it from you. It's better for you to lose one of the parts of your body than your whole body to go to hell. Then he goes on to the issue of divorce and uh, adultery. And so the reality is, later when Jesus says these same things, in Matthew 19, his own disciples come to him and say, boy, the way you're teaching, it sounds like we shouldn't get married. So I think that what they're saying is, perhaps the, based on the teaching of the Lord, because sexuality at Corinth is so ubiquitous, we should avoid 
this, this marriage. And so Paul's going to refer in that context. His explanation uh, is uh, that marital sex is of mutual benefit to the couple and that by uh, that avoiding fornication, um, which is the requirements of Leviticus, require that we marry. And therefore, he says, if you're, if this, if you're headed towards fornication to violate sexuality, you should marry. Uh, and he's going to give an exception here. So he tells them uh, that the drive is from God and Jews marry, but pagans see it as a drive towards personal satisfaction. Our Greco-Roman secular culture sees sexuality much the way the ancient pagan world did, where it's about my sexuality and my needs and not about a relationship focusing on the union of the couple and the procreation that comes out of that. And so um, Paul is having to address that to people who can't really hear it in the way that, uh, that, that they would understand. So he first gives this foundational thing that marriage is there for sexuality. Sexuality is not supposed to be outside of marriage. And therefore to avoid that, you should marry each of you having your own husband and wife and that the relationship should be done in a way that doesn't cause temptation by Satan outside of that. Now there's more in this context, but I won't get through the chapter if I, if I stop on every part of that. So now Paul makes a very odd statement. A statement that often people tie to these first verses. I believe it's tied to the ones he's about to say. So in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 6, Paul says... But this I say by way of concession, not of command. Paul's going to make a distinction between his response in a new circumstance and what is settled commandment of God. And that's this responsa idea. For I wish, and some of the early manuscripts say for rather than yet, for I wish that all men were even as I myself am. However, each man has his own gift from God, one in this manner and another in that manner. So Paul is making a statement. He says, I'm not making a commandment. I just gave you the commandment of the Lord. The commandment of the Lord is to avoid fornication, and the answer to that is marriage. But I wish that people were as I am. Now, at this point in Paul's life, he is unmarried. It is likely that he had been married and that his wife had left him after his Damascus Road situation because he's going to talk about what happens when an unbeliever leaves in this context. And so he is likely talking about his own experience in that context. A lot of people believe that Jesus wasn't married. Of course, Jesus is betrothed to the church. He has a bride. Paul wouldn't have been allowed by the Sanhedrin to do the things that he did in their place if he had been a mere boy and not a married man because of Jewish uh, views about it being not correct for a man to be unmarried. So we, we read our context into this and not his context into it, and that's important. So, uh, what Paul then is about to say here 
is, he says, I wish that all men were like me, but each one has his own gift from God. He doesn't say calling. Be careful. A lot of people are using these verses to talk about a calling to singleness. He's talking about a gift, and he's talking uh, probably about the gift of uh, faith, which allows him to remain in his unmarried state, though he had been married. He then says, So I say to the unmarried and the widows, which is talking not about pre-married, he's talking more about widows and divorced in this context. Uh, He doesn't use the word divorce, but he is saying, if you're not married, whatever reason, including widowing, it is good for them to remain even as I. Now that's an interesting statement by Paul, because in 1 Timothy chapter 5, Paul commands that women who are widowed under the age of 60 get married. So he's either talking out of both sides of his mouth or there's a circumstance here that Paul is addressing and I believe that's what he's doing. But if they do not have self-control, let them marry for it is better to marry than to burn with passion. So again, to avoid fornication, you should get married. Okay? I believe that the sex drive of teenagers is the body and God saying time to get married and reproduce. The problem for us is that we have retarded their development so that they're adolescents and not adults, and that would be a disaster. The problem is we haven't altered the physiology created by God, and that creates a problem for us. Uh, Now, so Paul has talked to the unmarried and the widows. Now in in, uh, chapter, uh, verse, verse 10 and 11, he's going to talk to the married. To the married, I give instructions, not I, but the Lord. Paul's saying, this is not me giving by way of concession. This is a commandment of the Lord. Okay? And what is the commandment of the Lord? That the wife should not leave her husband, but if she does leave, she should remain unmarried, or else be reconciled to her husband, and that the husband should not divorce his wife. This is standard Jesus' teaching on the subject which is why I think that there's a reference here to Matthew. Jesus basically said, if you divorce someone and marry another, uh, you cause your spouse to commit adultery, and the one who marries that person commits adultery. It's a pretty strict thing. He makes an exception in Matthew that I think is related to betrothal. I'll talk about that in a minute. But the idea is Jesus has pretty strong statements in that. And Paul's saying, this is not me talking, this is the Lord talking. Now after he says that, what he's saying is, if a couple is married uh, and they are believers, they should remain married. This is Matthew 19, verses 1 through 12. This is why Jesus' disciples said, man, it's better not to marry if, you know, no matter what, we can't get out of this. Uh, So Jesus establishes the permanence of marriage for believers. They can separate, and that would be consistent with 1 Corinthians 5, where there's gross sin in the life of one of them, as we then deal with that person, removing them from the community, and God then brings them back. But again, remember, we're talking here about two believers, even though one may be caught in a sin. So, he uh, gives us that information. He says, it's settled by the command of the Lord. They should remain married. 
Here Jesus establishes that permanence for believers and allows, in Paul's response, for a separation, but it's separation towards reconciliation. Now we then move to chapter 7, verse 12, where he is going to talk to the rest. But to the rest I say, not the Lord. Now again, he's saying, Jesus didn't talk about this. Jesus talked about believers married to believers. Those under the covenant of God with those under the covenant of God. But what about those who are unequally yoked? And so Paul's going to talk about that. To the rest I say, not the Lord, that if a brother, that means a believer, has a wife who's an unbeliever, and she consents to live with him, he must not divorce her. And the husband who has an unbelieving husband, and he consents to live with her, she must not send her husband away. Because the unbelieving husband is sanctified through the wife, and the unbelieving wife is sanctified through her believing husband. Otherwise your children are unclean, but now they are holy. Yet, if the unbeliever leaves, let him leave. The brother or sister, that is the believer, is not under bondage, a term Paul uses about being under the law of the covenant there, uh, in such cases, but God has called us to peace. Because you don't know, wife, whether you will save your husband, and you don't know, husband, whether you'll save your wife. Now, this is really difficult for us to think. We have a thought that a believer marries an unbeliever. That's forbidden in the scriptures. We're not to be unequally yoked. So what is going on here? What's going on here is a person is married... Both of them unbelievers, and one of them becomes, an un, becomes a believer. If they're now holy, do they get rid of their unbelieving spouse? And Paul says, there, it depends on the unbelieving spouse. If the unbelieving spouse is willing to function in a religious marriage, even though they're not religious, for the sake of the children, then no divorce is necessary. If, on the other hand, the believer, unbeliever says, I don't want to be married to a nut, and I'm going my own way, the believer is not bound to that unbeliever in acting in an unbelieving manner. Now, the problem is this. We have, we have screwed up marriage so bad that most of us have secular cultural marriages, and the idea of a religious marriage doesn't enter our mind. The reality is that the unbeliever must commit themselves to the rules of marriage as found in a religious marriage. We have trouble getting Christians to follow those rules, let alone unbelievers, right? But that's what Paul's talking about and dealing with here in this context. And he says that the focus is on the holiness of the children. This is on the benefit of the children. Historically, what the church has done is turned this on its back and said, not that this is a case where an unbeliever, two unbelievers are married and one becomes a believer, but if you want to marry an unbeliever, we will do that as long as you agree to raise the children in the faith, which is god-awful, should never have been done that way, but that's how it got interpreted. What Paul's talking about is a situation where the unbelievers, one becomes a believer and they didn't know, probably part of their question, do we get rid of our unbelieving spouses? Looking back at the Old Testament, there is a place where the Jews got rid of their Gentile spouses 
because they had intermarried unbelievers. But they had done that intentionally. This is not about that. This is where the gospel has come to a couple and one of them has come to faith. So, that's what that situation is uh, here. So, Paul now is going to give us a principle. That principle is found in verses 17 uh, through 24. And I think he's going to bring us to the point of what he's really talking about. Only as the Lord has assigned to each one, as God has called each, in this manner, let him walk. And so I direct in all the churches. So Paul's about to say, here's another commandment of the Lord. Was any man called in circumcision? He is not to become uncircumcised. If you came to Christ, you came to Messiah as an observant Jew, you are not to become a non-observant Jew or a Gentile. Has any been called in uncircumcision? He is not to be circumcised. That's Acts 15, right? The Gentiles aren't required to do that. Circumcision is nothing. Uncircumcision is nothing. Almost a parallel to what he says in Galatians. But he says it a little different. There he says a new creation. Here he says what matters is the keeping of the commandments of God. Because the Gentiles know that some of the commandments refer to them. That's why they're asking the questions. Each man must remain in the condition in which he was called. It's not a calling to those things. It's a calling to Christ while you are those things. Okay? Were you called while a slave? Don't worry about it. If you're able to become free, do that. For he who is called in the Lord while a slave is the Lord's free man. Likewise, he who is called while free is Christ's slave. Right? When you're called to Christ, it changes the parameters of your whole existence. So then he says... You were bought with a price, same thing he said in, in chapter 6. Uh, do not become the slaves of men. You belong to God now. Obey his, his directions. So brethren, each one is to remain with God in the condition in which he was called. Now why is he doing this? Are we not to marry? What if I'm called single? He's going to address that. So, we now pick up Verse 25 to 31. And Paul's going to tell us why he's making this unique explanation that's different than other passages that he's talked about this. Concerning virgins, I have no command of the Lord. But I give an opinion as one who by the mercy of the Lord is trustworthy. Okay? The general understanding in Judaism is that virgins are basically waiting to get married. Okay? And so he says, I don't have a commandment here. The standard structure is there. But I'm going to talk about something. So look at verse 26 very carefully. I think then that this is good in view of the present distress. That it is good for a man to remain as he is. Are you bound to a wife? Don't seek to be released. Are you released from a wife? Don't seek a wife. Wow. That is not typical context. Paul's addressing 
a thing that he calls the present distress, which I think relates to Matthew chapter 24. And I'll tell you why in a moment. But if you marry, you have not sinned. And if a virgin marries, she has not sinned. Yet you will have trouble in this life, and I'm trying to spare you. So here I, here's what I say, verse 29. Time has been shortened. That's the key to Matthew 24. So that now those who have wives should be as though they have none. And those who weep as though they did not weep. And those who rejoice as though they did not rejoice. And those who buy as though they did not possess. And those who use the world as though they did not make full use of it. For the form of this world is passing away. So what is Paul talking about? He uses two phrases. Because of the present distress and time has been shortened. Well, I want you to turn with me back to Jesus' teachings in Matthew chapter 24. In most of Paul's writings, when he refers to something, a biblical text or a teaching, he doesn't necessarily quote the person. He just says the phrase, assuming you know what he's talking about. And as soon as I read these, I immediately go to Matthew 24, where Jesus talks about these things. We'll pick it up at verse 15. You'll notice there's a title there that says Perilous Times, which could be a reference to present distress. Okay, Therefore, when you see the abomination of desolation spoken through Daniel the prophet standing in the holy place, let the reader understand. Those who are in Judea must flee to the mountains. If you're on the house stop, do not go down to get the things that are in the house. Whoever is in the field must not turn back to get his cloak. Woe to those who are pregnant and to those who are nursing in those days. This is not a good time to get married and start having kids. Which is why I think they're asking the question. Pray that your flight is not on the winter or the Sabbath, because then there will be a great tribulation such as not occurred since the beginning of the world until now, nor ever will be. And unless those days should be cut short, the time is short, no life would be saved. But for the sake of the elect, those days will be short. And then he goes on to tell us about what's going on because the Lord's coming is imminent. Now, I believe that Paul is looking at the persecution of the believers at the time he's writing this letter, thinking that the time may be short, and while it's either a type of the tribulation, or they're moving rapidly towards it, and he's giving his opinion, which will be helpful to those who are close to that, to apply these exceptions to standard texts related to marriage and family. In that context. So. Jesus talks of the great tribulation. That will occur at the end. It will be great distress. A bad time to be pregnant or nursing. It will be a time that is cut short. Paul understands that the Corinthians. Are under persecution. And and the difficulty may be applicable here. This could be the beginning of the great tribulation. They don't know. And so we have to live different. We have to live even less connected to the world than we would normally. Because the, mo- the traditional diaspora model is to marry. This is Jeremiah, right? Marry, have children, and increase because 
I know the plans I have for you when I'm bringing you back. But this is, it's going to be a time of trouble. You're going to have to leave town. It's not a good time to be pregnant or nursing. So even the married must live as if they are not. Now, if you take this seriously, a person could say, oh, I don't have to take care of my wife and children. Okay? If you understand it in context, he's not saying that. Even the married must live as if they are not. And those who are mourning can't go through all the rituals of mourning because they have to keep their mind and their watch on the difficulties that are going on. And those who are buying, those who are in business, have to do it knowing that what they buy today for tomorrow may not be available tomorrow. Uh, So the principle behind all of this is Matthew 24, I believe. So when we are persecuted, many of the standard life issues have to be adapted so that we will survive to the end. So Paul is talking about that, and he's going to specifically address that as he comes to the end of this chapter. So back to chapter 7, and uh, we'll pick it up at verse 32. He says, I'm trying to make to spare you from problems in this world, right? I want you to be free from concern. The one who is unmarried in this present distress, when there is difficulties of this nature, uh, is concerned about the things of the Lord, how he may please the Lord. But the one who is married is concerned about the things of the world, how he may please his wife. And his interests are divided. And the woman who is unmarried... And the virgin, uh, clearly indicating that unmarried here is the marriage has ended and the virgin has never married, which is consistent with the rest of the chapter, um, uh, is concerned about the things of the Lord, how she may be both holy in body and spirit. But the one who is married is concerned about the things of the world, how she may please her husband. Worried about the circumstances in the world, which now is a present distress. I say this for your benefit, not to put a restraint on you, but to promote what is appropriate and to secure undistracted devotion to the Lord, no matter what your circumstances are. Now he's going to talk about a man and his virgin. Bible commentators are divided on this. Some believe that this is a father and his daughter. Is he going to give her to marry? And others believe it's a man who's a betrothed husband. Is he going to go to the second stage of marriage where they begin to be sexual and have children? And I think that's the context and it makes sense in the rest of the chapter. If a man thinks that he is acting unbecoming towards his virgin. See, it says daughter there. I don't believe that. Uh, That's the translators put it in and I wasn't the one who did it. Uh, If she is past her youth, so she's hitting the age of 30, which means she's not going to be able to reproduce. If it must be so, let him do what he wishes. He's not sinning. Let her marry. Come together in that context. Have children. But he who stands firm in his heart, being under no constraint, but has authority over his own will, and decided in his heart that he will keep his virgin, he will do well. Because she won't be nursing or pregnant in this stress. So then the one who gives her in marriage does well. But the one who does not give her in marriage does better. 
Now again, if you take out the word daughter and you look at the way the Greek is constructed, it could also be uh, read that if he takes her in marriage, because the word just says he marries her. So it doesn't say gives her in marriage. It doesn't say takes her in marriage. It says let her marry, right? So it could be either one. Then he says, a wife is bound as long as her husband lives, but if her husband is dead, ladies, he's got to really be dead. He just can't be mostly dead, right? Okay. She is free to be married to whom she wishes, but only in the Lord. Back to the believer-believer marriage. But in my opinion, she is happier if she remains as she is. I think I also have the Spirit of God. Again, the context here is, this might not be a good time to marry if we're beginning to see heightened persecution. It's okay to marry. It's not a sin not to marry. But there are difficulties. Okay? There are difficulties with having very young children in persecution. Ask Christians around the world. So I believe that this chapter must be understood in the context of Jesus' teachings. That Paul is going back and forth between the Lord said, now I'm giving my opinion, not as a standard. This text is used to create the belief that people are called to singleness. And Paul makes no such statement. In this entire chapter. But it is used as the primary text for that. With this young generation. Who are not looking for full devotion, devotion to the Lord. They're looking to avoid marriage and children. Because that is the world's context. You can't have the best life. If you get married and have children. You have the best life if you have a career. And you enjoy yourself. And you travel. And if you want to have kids. There are plenty of them out there. You can adopt one. That is not what Paul is addressing. He's addressing a situation with the Corinthians based on letters that they have written to him, probably based on Acts 15 and the Gospel of Matthew or the teachings of Jesus as they had come to them in that sense. So, Paul's not certain that it's the last time, so he explains his approach. A single person can serve God unhindered, but a family person must obey God and care for his family. This opens up the possibility of divided loyalty in the context of persecution. He then gives an example of the betrothed. We cannot be certain if his guidance is for the husband or for the father of the bride, but I suspect it's the husband, the betrothed husband. Uh, Both may be in focus here. After all, Joseph kept his bride a virgin until she brought forth her firstborn, because it was a unique circumstance, right? So that's not an unprecedented notion. Um, Paul finally explains that a woman is bound to her husband, but if he dies, she can marry another, but it has to be a believer. But he thinks also that in that context, in this present distress, she might want to not do that. Though elsewhere, he recommends marriage for those people. So, Paul's now going to address... Uh, idols and meat sacrifice to idols are probably another question that they ask based on Acts 15 and or the statements of Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount. So, I know that's a new way for you to see this, but I think that it's more accurate than the way many of the commentaries do it. Uh, it'll give you something to think about and we can have our own Q&A as well. Let's pray.